Next week marks the 18th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq. Hundreds of thousands of people were killed in a war based on lies, a mass movement organized against that war. Today, we will explore some of the profound debates among socialists and anti-war organizers over strategies and tactics in the movements against war, against militarism, and for peace. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Real Story on The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. If you enjoy the show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com forward slash The Socialist Program and subscribing. We can keep doing this show with your support, but not without it. Today, one week before the U.S. invasion of Iraq, we're going to review the war in Iraq, and the debates, as I mentioned in the introduction, that took place within the anti-war movement, which was a truly global movement to stop the Iraq war before it started, and then in opposition to the U.S. occupation of Iraq afterwards. During this entire month, we're focused on the Middle East. Last week, we talked in depth about why the U.S. was at war constantly with Syria, why it was trying to overthrow the Syrian government. The fact of the matter is the last five presidents of the United States, starting with George H.W. Bush, have been at war in Iraq. Every president since 1990 has been bombing Iraq. I've been to Iraq multiple times. I was there during the 90s. I was there right before the first Gulf War. I was there right before the second war, the invasion of Iraq. When I talked to Iraqis, they always asked, why are you doing this? Why is your government doing this to us? Why is it bombing us? Why is it imposing economic sanctions, depriving people of food and medicine? The sanctions were slow motion genocide. The Iraqis didn't understand it. And, you know, people, part of our delegations would say, well, it's because the U.S. government doesn't like your government the Saddam Hussein government. And many of the people would say, well, we don't like our government either, but why are you depriving us of food and medicine? Why are you killing us? Again, it's perplexing for the people in Iraq why they are the target of endless war. But during the past 30 years, while the U.S. has been at war against Iraq, there have been mass movements led by, for the most part, led by socialists, and certainly anti-war forces. And these movements have gone through different stages and phases. They've gone through different periods where they've become massive. They've had times when they've contracted. Again, the debates about the movement or how the movement should conduct itself are extremely important for anti-war forces and for socialists going forward. Because war, militarism, the current 
wars, the current militarism, the seeming addiction to war by the United States is part and parcel in a fundamental feature of modern day capitalism. Capitalism in the modern day, in this era, is an imperialist economic and political and military system. And the imperialism waged or conducted by or sustained by the United States is part and parcel of modern capitalism. So these debates are not going to stop. They're not going to go away. They're going to keep coming back over and over again. And people need to learn the lessons from those debates. Before we do that, though, let's just frame what happened. Again, many of our listeners would have been young children. Some may not even have been born in March 2003 when the U.S. launched the shock and awe invasion of Iraq. Shock and awe. The the U.S., the Bush administration was going to impose shock and awe, a phrase, by the way, that has its original roots in the way the slave owners intended to punish or intimidate enslaved people in the southern states with shock and awe tactics such that the oppressed would not fight back. Anyway, very interesting use of words there by by George W. Bush. Originally, the operation, the war against Iraq was going to be called Operation Iraqi Liberation, but then somebody, one of those geniuses in the Pentagon realized the acronym then would be OIL, So they switched it to Operation Iraqi Freedom just in time for the invasion. Anyway, I want to go back. I want to have us listen to George W. Bush. There are a few short audio clips. He made a speech to the nation at the moment the bombs were bursting in downtown Baghdad. Let's listen to the first clip. My fellow citizens, at this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. On my orders, coalition forces have begun striking selected targets of military importance to undermine Saddam Hussein's ability to wage war. These are opening stages of what will be a broad and concerted campaign. So, yes, the U.S. was going to carry out shock and awe invasion. It's going to be a part of a broader campaign. It was designed, according to George W. Bush, to prevent Saddam Hussein from waging war. Now, Iraq had been sanctioned at that point for 13 years. 12,000 military weapons inspections had taken place by U.S.-led U.N. weapons inspectors. Those inspectors knew Iraq had no weapons of mass destruction. They knew it completely. The entire premise that Iraq was now threatening its neighbors, threatening the world, it was a threat to world peace was preposterous because Iraq was surrounded. It was occupied. Most of its territory was under a no-fly zone. It couldn't even fly its planes in its own airspace. And as I mentioned, the economic sanctions had devastated Iraqi society. Let's hear the next audio clip. To all the men and women of the United States Armed Forces now in the Middle East, the peace of a troubled world and the hopes of an oppressed people now depend on you. That trust is well-placed. The enemies you confront will come to know your skill and bravery. The people you liberate will witness the honorable and decent spirit of the American military. This was the introduction of the neocon language. The Iraqis were going to love the Americans. They were going to 
recognize their skills in fighting, their bravery, and their determination, dedication to Iraqi freedom. Well, no, the Iraqis ultimately and very quickly decided this is a racist colonial style occupation of their country by forces who have great military power, but don't understand anything about Iraq, don't speak Arabic, don't know anything about the religions of the area. But people who are able to shoot first and ask questions later, if questions were asked at all, ultimately, according to the Lancet Medical Journal in 2008, 2009, as many as a million Iraqis had died who would not have otherwise died if it wasn't for that invasion. Again, all of this premised on lies. Remember, by the way, Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton, ardent supporters of George Bush's war. Let's hear another little clip from George W. Bush, March 19th, 2003. We come to Iraq with respect for its citizens, for their great civilization, and for the religious faiths they practice. We have no ambition in Iraq except to remove a threat and restore control of that country to its own people. I mean, when you hear it again 18 years later, the great respect for the Iraqi people. The U.S. has no ambitions. It's the only imperialist power in the world that invades and occupies countries with only goodness in its heart. It doesn't want its the land, labor, and resources of the country. It doesn't want to exploit the country. It doesn't want to turn it into a proxy. It just is doing it for the love of the Iraqi people. Let's go on. Again, all of this was spoon-fed to the American people and enough members of Congress voted yes, they would authorize the use of military force. And you can know that our forces will be coming home as soon as their work is done. Our nation enters this conflict reluctantly, yet our purpose is sure. The people of the United States and our friends and allies will not live at the mercy of an outlaw regime that threatens the peace with weapons of mass murder. We will meet that threat now with our Army, Air Force, Navy, Coast Guard, and Marines, so that we do not have to meet it later with armies of firefighters and police and doctors on the streets of our cities. All lies. I mean, just think about it. The troops are going to come home soon. Mm, that's not true. The troops are still there 18 years later. They're still occupying Iraq. But again, if the U.S. didn't invade Iraq, George W. Bush told the people, the firefighters and the police would have to do it on the streets of the United States. This is George W. Bush making the obvious connection to the September 11th attacks, September 11th, 2001, which had happened 18 months earlier. Those were conducted by Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda was an enemy of the Ba'athist government in Iraq. The Iraqi government was an enemy of Al-Qaeda. But again, this was the con job where the American people were told, Iraq was responsible for the attacks on September 11th, and if we don't fight them now, this menace, this great menace, Saddam Hussein, would be attacking American cities very, very soon. Again, it's just so preposterous when you hear it. I want to play one last little audio clip. George W. Bush, that night, that historic night, March 19th, 2003, the beginning of shock and awe. Now that conflict has come, the only way to limit its duration is to apply decisive force. And I assure you, this will not be a campaign of half measures, and we will accept no outcome but victory. I mean, it's just so 
nakedly imperialistic. I mean, the United States is not threatened by Iraq. The United States had imposed this no-fly zone on the northern and southern parts of Iraq. It had dominated the country economically. It was surrounded militarily. Again, when you hear back the words of George W. Bush and realize, one, hundreds of thousands at least, maybe a million Iraqis died. Tens of thousands of U.S. soldiers were either killed or suffered life-changing injuries. I mean, George W. Bush now likes to paint pictures of hobbled and disabled veterans from the Iraq war, but he made them disabled, and it was all premised on lies. Again, there was at that time a massive, massive movement against the war in Iraq. But as we explore this topic, why the U.S. was in Iraq, but also why and how the people of the United States could and tried to stop the war and fight against the war, we want to get into some of the debates. To do that, I want to start by going back to the first Gulf War. And that's where there begins a real political struggle between different wings. There were two primary wings of what became a massive anti-war movement in the first Gulf War and an even larger movement in the second Iraq War. And of course, I'm the national coordinator of the Answer Coalition. Answer Coalition was formed on September 14th, 2001, three days after the September 11th attacks, when those of us in the progressive anti-war movement realized that the U.S. was going to take advantage of the September 11th attacks and take advantage of the grief and rage of the American people to redirect that rage to support an invasion of other countries, countries that had nothing to do with September 11th, countries that were on the target list for the neocons and of U.S. imperialism following the collapse of the Soviet Union. And those were the countries that had their origin in the anti-colonial project after World War II, Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, Libya, countries that, while not led by socialists or communists, were supported by, had the military, economic, and political support from the socialist bloc countries for a long time, led by the Soviet Union. After the Soviet Union was gone, those countries became vulnerable and they became targeted. So let's go back to the first war on Iraq. Now, the second war was completely premised on a lie that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. The excuse for the first war against Iraq, way, way back in 1991, January 1991, there was a plausible explanation for why the U.S. was going to war. Of course, it too was premised on basically a lie, but I want to go over what the reason was for that war, the rationale for that war, because it led to this big or revealed this big split, this big political division among anti-war forces such that they started organizing independent and separate demonstrations, huge demonstrations, but not together. And sometimes the demonstrations were just days apart. Anyway, let's go back. First Gulf War, it starts January 16th, 1991. Uh, But this is George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush's father, explaining what the war is about. Just two hours ago, Allied Air Forces began an attack on military targets in Iraq and Kuwait. These attacks continue as I speak. Ground forces are not engaged. This conflict started August 2nd when the dictator of Iraq 
invaded a small and helpless neighbor. Kuwait, a member of the Arab League and a member of the United Nations, was crushed. Its people brutalized. Five months ago, Saddam Hussein started this cruel war against Kuwait. Tonight, the battle has been joined. All right, so George H.W. Bush says, look, Iraq invaded Kuwait August 2nd, 1990. Kuwait was crushed. It was a small, powerless country. The West had to come to support Kuwait. That was the explanation. Now, Iraq did invade Kuwait on August 2nd. Iraqis, generally speaking, through the 20th century, sort of looked at Kuwait the way Chinese people looked at Hong Kong, that British colonialism had come and carved out an important port area during the colonial era, put a flag on it, called it you know, either a colonial territory in the case of Hong Kong or after World War II, just renamed it Kuwait. But of course, it was a British invention. The British military separated that part of Iraq that led to the sea. That's what made Iraq, in essence, landlocked, in fact. And in many ways, by helping to sustain the, the monarchy in Kuwait, basically a big oil company that had a national flag associated with it, British and later American imperialism had this outpost. So there was a, a struggle going on between the Kuwaiti government and the Iraqi government over a host of issues. And those issues stemmed from a reorientation of Kuwaiti foreign policy following the Iran-Iraq war. Remember, the U.S. supported Saddam Hussein's invasion of Iran in 1980 after the Iranian people dared to have a revolution. During that time, after Saddam thought he would win a quick victory, that he would seize a part of Iran, the Abadan Arabic-speaking part that's oil-rich, close to Iraq. That didn't happen. Instead, Iran mounted a long counteroffensive that war dragged on for eight years. When it looked like Iraq, which was a much smaller country, was going to be overrun or even just losing some of the major battles, Saddam Hussein, with the support of Western powers, including the United States, started using chemical weapons against Iranian soldiers and later against Kurds in the northern part of the country who were military allies of Iran. And during that time, as a matter of fact, the day after Saddam Hussein first used chemical weapons in the Iran-Iraq war, Donald Rumsfeld showed up in Baghdad. He was a special envoy of Ronald Reagan at that time. And he met with Saddam Hussein. And there are pictures of them hugging each other. It's like, we love Saddam Hussein. He's using chemical weapons against Iran. That's cool. But at the end of the Iran-Iraq war, after the U.S. kind of helped and sustained the war such that both sides would be completely exhausted, the two powers in that Gulf region, which were regional powers, which were not monarchies, which could be independent, after they were basically exhausted after eight years of long and bloody conflict, the United States worked behind the scenes with Kuwait to reorient Kuwait's foreign policy to adopt a stance of hostility to Iraq. During the Iran-Iraq war, Kuwait had been an ally of Saddam Hussein, but everything changed and the U.S. military started reorienting all of its war game strategies. It became obvious by mid or late 1988 that the U.S. was reorienting military policy such that it would be preparing for a war with Iraq. So then the Iraq-Kuwait 
dispute. I don't need to go into all of the reasons for it. It breaks out. And finally, Saddam Hussein says, look, Kuwait's not a viable country. It's not really legitimate. It's really an outpost of British colonialism. As a matter of fact, when we had our Iraqi revolution in in July 1958 and ended the British-backed monarchy, the British sent 10,000 troops into Kuwait to make sure that we didn't liberate Kuwait then. We're going to liberate Kuwait now. We're going to reunite it with the motherland. Okay, most of the world profoundly disagreed with the invasion of Kuwait, but immediately, even though Saddam expected that there would be a resolution mediated by and organized by the Arab League such that the Kuwaiti government would make concessions to Iraq or be partly replaced with a pro-Iraqi regime. Instead of that, the United States started sending hundreds of thousands of troops before any negotiations could even take place. And by September, the U.S. had 100,000 troops in Saudi Arabia. They were preparing for war against Iraq. The U.S. imposed economic sanctions on Iraq. The U.S. refused to negotiate with Iraq. The U.S. allies in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, and the other major Gulf monarchies also renounced, or that's what the U.S. said, we never actually heard it straight from their mouths, that they renounced negotiations too. It was clear that the U.S. was preparing for war against Iraq. So at the time Iraq invaded Kuwait, And when the U.S. troops were coming in the tens of thousands and then hundreds of thousands, a small number of people, I was among them, started organizing protests against the United States. And other parts of the peace movement and other parts of the socialist movement said, wait, this isn't Vietnam. And Saddam Hussein is not Ho Chi Minh. Saddam Hussein is an aggressor. He invaded Kuwait. That's against international law. It's disgusting. We should not be in the camp of Saddam Hussein. And those of us who were organizing these, at first, very small protests, said, look, the United States is not going to war because it cares about the rights of people in Kuwait or the rights of people anywhere. If the U.S. is going to war, if it's mobilizing hundreds of thousands of troops to the Gulf region and refusing to negotiate, it's because the U.S. wants the war for its own purpose. And it was our argument that as the Soviet Union was ending its confrontation with Western imperialism, when Gorbachev, and this was the last days of the Soviet Union before its collapse, as the Soviets were basically saying, look, we just want to placate and appease Western imperialism. We're not going to stand by our Arab allies, including Iraq. Iraq was a principal Soviet ally. The U.S. sensed opportunity. Iraq provided the pretext, Saddam's very reckless invasion of Kuwait, and by international law, clearly an illegal invasion, whatever its political rationale, it was an illegal invasion. It was denounced and condemned by the UN. Even Cuba made it clear that Cuba was not for the the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. So Iraq became isolated because of the recklessness of Saddam Hussein the audacity and recklessness of that regime. But the United States didn't need to go to war. The U.S. wanted to go to war. And after the first small protests, there became bigger protests. And then a lot of people started joining even larger protests by October 1990. 
tens of thousands of people started coming out. Then the Bush administration set a deadline that unless Iraq leaves Kuwait by January 15th, the U.S. was going to carry out a U.S.-led invasion. Other countries would participate, but the U.S. would be the leadership. So at that time, the movement against the war, which was growing, 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 split into two different camps. One coalition was called the National Coalition to Stop U.S. Intervention in the Middle East, and the other camp, the other part of the anti-war movement was called the National Campaign for Peace in the Middle East. Now, those two coalitions announced a demonstration or had planned to have a united demonstration right around the time that the U.S. had set as a deadline for war against Iraq, which would mid-January 1991. But it turned out that the two coalitions broke apart and they actually marched two weekends apart. So the National Coalition to Stop U.S. Intervention in the Middle East, the coalition I was in and an organizer with, organized a mass demonstration of about 75,000 people on January 19th, 1991. And the following week, one week later on January 26th, the other coalition, the National Campaign for Peace in the Middle East, they organized an even bigger demonstration with hundreds of thousands of people, maybe 200,000 people. So the demonstration I was organizing was smaller, but still large, 75,000 people. The next week, another demonstration. What was the political premise of the split at that time between the two anti-war coalitions? Here's what it is. Our demand, the National Coalition to Stop U.S. Intervention in the Middle East, and many of these same forces ended up constituting the Answer Coalition a decade or so later, we made the point that the U.S. was going to war against Iraq, not because of Kuwait, but because it had its own imperialist agenda. The other coalition said Iraq's invasion of Kuwait must be denounced and we must condemn it. And we are going to organize under the slogan, and this is what they did. They had hundreds of thousands of people at a peace demonstration organized under the banner, Sanctions Not War. So we had one coalition marching on January 19th that said, no war against Iraq, period. Didn't say we support the invasion of Kuwait, but we didn't talk about the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait as the real reason for the U.S. planned war against Iraq, because it wasn't the real reason. It was a pretext, a useful pretext, a convenient pretext. And the other side, which, again, a bigger part of the U.S. peace movement was demanding sanctions on Iraq. So they had lots of American flags up front, and they marched on January 26th, chanting, sanctions, not war, sanctions, not war. Now, later, a decade later, some of these forces supported a movement that we had initiated against sanctions from the beginning because our argument was don't ask the imperialists to punish Iraq through sanctions because sanctions, one, are not an alternative to war. Sanctions are just a form of war. And I think now everybody in the movement recognizes that, yes, economic sanctions are a form of imperialist war. But in 1991, a big part of the peace movement, the bigger part, actually organized and demanded economic sanctions on Iraq, which they said were an alternative. 
Now, I want to explain why why this happened. Why would progressive people, why would people who call themselves socialists, why would they be demanding sanctions, not war against Iraq? I mean, nowadays, again, people would think like, are you crazy? You're going to support sanctions? This was the main demand of all of these peace organizations. And I want to explain why. Because while we were organizing against the war, the looming war against Iraq, when you went before the TV cameras, when you were interviewed by the press, the media would say, okay, you're against war on Iraq, but you condemn Iraq's invasion of Kuwait, right? I mean, that wasn't legal. That should be condemned, right? So these other people in the peace movement would, of course, say, yes, we don't support Saddam's invasion of Kuwait. That would be their public discourse. They would say, we're for peace. We're for peace. We're against the new Vietnam-type war. We're also against Iraq's war on Kuwait. They had, in essence, an equivalency between Iraq's invasion of Kuwait and the looming U.S. imperialist invasion of or bombing of Iraq. And the next question somebody in the media would ask you, they'd say, well, look, okay, you you are against a war, but you're also against Iraq's invasion of Kuwait. If war is not the answer, what is the answer? You agree that Iraq, something must be done about Kuwait. What is it? And so the convenient answer was, and this was the dominant message by most peace groups in America, we need to let UN economic sanctions work against Iraq rather than go to war. So their struggle against the war was really not an anti-imperialist framing. It wasn't premised on the idea that imperialism was going to war in the Middle East against Iraq using Kuwait as a pretext, and that we should just explain to the American working class and to the American people that this war was premised on a falsehood. The falsehood was that the United States actually cared about Kuwait. And also, we have to show that the real danger of war in the Middle East really doesn't come from the local regimes in the Middle East, as odious as they might be. It comes from the main enemy of peace, which is U.S. imperialism. So our demand was no war against Iraq, period. If the media asked us, as they did, because we were going on media all the time, if they asked us, well, you condemn Iraq's invasion of Kuwait, right? We would say, our coalition would say, that's not why the U.S. is going to war in the Middle East. The U.S. has never gone to war in the modern era in order to defend people somewhere. These are, these are just noble-sounding pretexts and rationale for imperialism, and that the real reason the U.S. was going to war against Iraq is that it was a new redivision of the world taking place. Lenin, in his thesis, Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism, had made the argument that modern imperialism, unlike, say, the ancient imperialism of the Roman Empire or other earlier imperialisms, was premised on capitalism's need to export capital, capitalism's need to expand, that capitalism was a system of endless expansion, and that colonialism, which had started as a policy, say, of Portugal or Britain or Spain, eventually became not a policy, but a global system. And that this system 
shows the maturing of modern capitalism by the 1880s led to the the redivision or the full division of the world. So take the Berlin Conference of 1884, where all the European colonialists with the United States there as an observer, they took the map of Africa and they peacefully divided all of Africa amongst themselves. So Britain took this part of Africa and France took this part, Germany took this part, etc. That was in 1884. By 1902, with the exception of Ethiopia, there was no more African self-governance. Ethiopia was the only really independent country left. That policy of complete colonization between the competing imperialists took over the entire world. So between 1880s and 1914, capitalism, advanced capitalist countries had divided the entire world. World War I was a war between the imperialists over how to redivide the world because they all had economies that continued to need an expanding global market, but the market had become saturated because the entire world had been already carved up. And so World War I was really a war that was hard to explain because unless you have an anti-imperialist perspective, the Americans entered to say it was a war to end all wars or things like that. But the real reason the war took place was there was a division or redivision of the world. Then 18 years later, after the end of World War I, was World War II. And the same inter-imperialist global war took place. The only difference was now there was one big country, the Soviet Union, which wasn't an imperialist country. It didn't have colonies. But Germany was trying to regain that which it had lost during the First World War. Same with Italy. So imperialism went from a policy to a system. And that this effort of division and redivision of the world became a permanent feature of modern day capitalism, which is what Lenin said led inevitably to war, that the imperialists would have to go to war with each other. Now, after World War II, to the surprise of the imperialists, a big part of the world became socialist and, and became part of the socialist bloc. And the inter-imperialist rivalry between the different imperialists to redivide the world was in some ways muted. It was in some ways downplayed because the U.S. created a global united front of all of the imperialists to challenge what they considered to be an even bigger enemy than each other in their quest for markets, which was the advent of socialism, which would deprive all of the capitalist countries of their markets of global socialism became successful. So the U.S. created this global united front against socialism, and that's what changed global politics. And also, the people of Africa and the Middle East and Asia, the colonized and semi-colonized people, became independent with the support of the socialist camp. What we in the National Coalition to Stop U.S. Intervention in the Middle East, the anti-imperialist wing of the anti-war movement at that time, argued was that the invasion of Kuwait by Iraq was being used as a pretext by U.S. imperialism and the other Western imperialist powers to go to war in the Middle East. But the real goal was to redivide markets once again, because the independent governments like Iraq, like Syria, like Lebanon, like Libya, they had become independent and thus controlled some of their own land, labor, and resources, and resources most notably because it was oil, with the support of the socialist camp, 
But now that the Soviet Union was weakening, now that the socialist bloc was coming apart in the late 1980s, the U.S. was going to lead Britain and France into another imperialist effort to take back for the imperialists that which used to belong to them, their colonial possessions, those same countries. And that this war, again, using Kuwait as a pretext, was nothing other than an imperialist war. And that's what we needed to explain to the American working class and to the American people, that Kuwait was just a pretext. But if you get into the position of like, we must condemn Iraq, we must join with the United States in condemning Iraq, but we disagree with the tactic of war because war is the absence of peace and we are for peace. If you reduce the anti-war argument to that rather than an anti-imperialist argument, you're not able to really educate people about who is and what is the real danger of war in the modern era. And the real danger of war in the modern era is, of course, world imperialism. And this debate is so profoundly important, and it manifests itself later through different, you know, by the late 1990s, all of the peace movement realized that sanctions were war. I mean, they didn't self-criticize themselves. They didn't say, oh, wait, Bush and then Clinton actually continued economic sanctions, which we were demanding. They didn't say, wow, that was a huge political error on our part to call for sanctions. They didn't do that. They just moved on and opposed sanctions. Or actually, right before the Iraq war, there was a debate again within the anti-war movement. And again, these two coalitions in 1990, 1991, they split and they went out of existence, of course, as the war you know, sort of died down. But later, when a new war danger came after the September 11th, the same coalitions, the same forces basically came together again and built two different wings of the anti-war movement. And during that time, we were arguing, the people who formed the Answer Coalition were arguing sanctions are war and the U.S. is using weapons inspections as a pretext to maintain sanctions. So our demand was like, stop all the aggression against Iraq, meaning let Iraq live. And the other peace forces who started organizing also against the Iraq war made the argument, no, war is a mistake. We should allow the UN weapons inspectors to continue to do their job. And we were like, no, that's a mistake. The weapons of mass destruction are a pretext. They're not what's really driving US policy. George W. Bush isn't afraid of Iraq. And again, it was because as public opinion was being whipped up again in the demonization of Iraq, that Iraq was a purveyor of weapons of mass destruction. This section of the peace movement wanted to show that they too were against the targeted government, against the demonized government. They were against Saddam. But instead of going to war a second time, weapons inspectors should be allowed to do their job. Now, that miseducates the American people. Again, it deprives the American people of understanding the imperialist character of the war as if these are simply mistakes. And the struggle over tactics is really a struggle over political perspective and also a struggle about how to stand up to public opinion, which is being generated by a mass media that 100% demonized the targeted entity, in this case, Saddam Hussein. Later, it was Assad in Syria. Later, it was Gaddafi in Libya. It's Maduro in Venezuela. And instead of trying to explain that these demonization campaigns 
are simply designed to whip the population up and prepare the population for the next imperialist aggression, these parts of the peace movement wanted to, in a way, sort of say, yes, we too agree that something must be done about Iraq. And the something must be that weapons inspectors must continue to do their jobs. And of course, that meant that there would be economic sanctions as well maintained against Iraq. They would say, let's just make them sanctions on military goods, not on food and medicine. That was the argument that was made in 2001, 2002. Have sanctions, yes, but against Iraq having military goods. Have sanctions against the Iraqi military and allow U.S.-led weapons inspectors to continue to monitor or to inspect Iraq's weapons. So it's basically like parts of the U.S. peace movement calling on Iraq to be disarmed. And Iraq was, in fact, continuing to disarm itself to show its fidelity to the weapons inspection regime. Even right up until the invasion on March 19th, Iraqi media was you know, showing images of them destroying their own weapons literally hours before they were invaded. They were hoping to gain some public support that way to show that they weren't really a menace. But for the American peace movement to make its argument, help disarm Iraq, instead of like, this is an imperialist war straight out, and it's premised completely on lies, and Iraq doesn't have weapons of mass destruction. Again, it's taking the line of least resistance, the line of least resistance, which deprives the American people of an anti-imperialist perspective. An anti-imperialist consciousness, when you're living in an imperialist country, which is the center of world imperialism, is critical for progressives, for socialists, for anti-war forces. I want to go to some of the other ways that this these debates manifested themselves, because it wasn't only about Iraq. I want to play an audio clip, a couple audio clips, actually, from Bill Clinton. In 1999, the U.S.-led NATO alliance destroyed Yugoslavia, the last remaining socialist country in Eastern Europe. Why did they do it? Did they say, look, we want to destroy Yugoslavia to reimpose neocolonial control over this former socialist country. We want to be able to dictate their policies. Maybe we want to integrate them into NATO. We want to especially grab hold of the lucrative parts of the country, the land, labor, resources. No, they said, the U.S. said, we're going to war. The U.S. is going to war because the Serbs, the Serb-led, the Serb-majority government in socialist Yugoslavia is oppressing a Muslim minority people in the province of Kosovo, which is a Serbian province. And Milosevic is mistreating the Kosovo minority. And we, NATO, NATO, the great lover of Muslims, you know, we need to go and protect Kosovo Muslims. And again, it was all a pretext. Again, the movement divided because a big part of the peace movement refused to join the anti-war movement at that time because they said, look, Milosevic is really oppressing the Muslim minority in Kosovo, and we support self-determination because if you're for human rights, that's what it's all about. When again, this whole episode was manipulated by U.S. imperialism and Western imperialism to destroy a socialist country. Anyway, let's listen. There's two short audio clips from Bill Clinton. Today, our armed forces joined our NATO allies in airstrikes against Serbian forces responsible for the brutality in Kosovo. We have acted with resolve for several reasons. We act to protect thousands of innocent people in Kosovo from a mounting military offensive. We act to prevent a wider war, to defuse a powder keg at the heart of Europe, 
that has exploded twice before in this century with catastrophic results. And we act to stand united with our allies for peace. By acting now, we are upholding our values, protecting our interests, and advancing the cause of peace. Tonight, I want to speak with you about the tragedy in Kosovo and why it matters to America that we work with our allies to end it. First, let me explain what it is we are responding to. Kosovo is a province of Serbia in the middle of southeastern Europe. Yeah, so again, American imperialism and imperialism generally, U.S. imperialism, 20th century imperialism or late 20th century imperialism, they can no longer go into and grab parts of countries. Like in 1915, when Woodrow Wilson ordered the Marines to Port-au-Prince, to Haiti, they invaded, they marched into the center of the capital, they opened the bank, they took all the money and the gold from Haiti and brought it back and put it in the bank, the city bank in New York City. And they did it because they could do it. That was just like, no, we're going to do it because we can. But in later post-World War II imperialism, when sensibilities of public opinion seemed to matter more, and this was especially true after the Vietnam War and the debacle for the U.S. in Vietnam, the U.S. had to sell their wars with noble goals. We have to do it for freedom, to protect civilians, to stop weapons of mass destruction, to help minority peoples. This is a new one. Like suddenly the United States loves Muslims and loves Muslim minority people as a pretext for NATO to go to war and drop 28,000 bombs and missiles between the end of March and June 3rd, 1999 on Yugoslavia. And finally, Yugoslavia says, okay, uncle, we give in, we're going to give you Kosovo uh, to stop what was then an imminent land or ground invasion. But it meant really the unwinding, the undoing of Yugoslavia. Milosevic, who had been so demonized, was finally taken prisoner. He was brought to The Hague. He died at The Hague. The target of American imperialist, NATO imperialist bombing was himself charged with war crimes and convicted of war crimes, or maybe he wasn't convicted. He was his own lawyer. But anyway, this is the thing, a victor's justice, right? The United States can bomb countries and occupy countries, but the United States can never be held account before the International Criminal Court or the World Court. And the U.S. is making the same argument, by the way, for the state of Israel in its genocidal wars against Palestinian people, in its criminal activity against Palestinian people. Anyway, victor's justice. But my point is that Milosevic in Yugoslavia was so demonized that while there was an anti-war movement in the United States, and I was one of the people in it, one of the organizers with it, along with you know many other people, but it was still a very much smaller movement. Most of the peace movement and most of the social democrats within the socialist movement wouldn't support the anti-war struggle, or they would support a kind of like, we're not for the NATO bombing, but we are for Kosovo independence. Like, again, we agree with the pretext that imperialism is using for the war, but not the tactic of the war. Again, that doesn't build anti-imperialist consciousness, but Clinton was a liberal, uh, well, not really, but you know, by American standards, and all the European countries that were NATO countries at that time were led by social democrats. So this was the social democratic wing of imperialism carrying out a war against socialist Yugoslavia using the pretext of defending Kosovars. I want to go to another audio clip. This is President Barack Obama 
announcing the, the war against Libya in 2011. Let's listen. Let me be clear. These terms are not negotiable. These terms are not subject to negotiation. If Gaddafi does not comply with the resolution, the international community will impose consequences, and the resolution will be enforced through military action. In this effort, the United States is prepared to act as part of an international coalition. American leadership is essential, but that does not mean acting alone. It means shaping the conditions for the international community to act together. That's why I've directed Secretary Gates and our military to coordinate their planning, and tomorrow Secretary Clinton will travel to Paris for a meeting with our European allies and Arab partners about the enforcement of Resolution 1973. Okay, so that's Obama on March 19th, 2011, exactly to the day that the U.S. invaded Iraq in 2003, eight years earlier. The U.S. and NATO, again, the same imperialist powers that bombed Yugoslavia to help Muslims, was going to now start bombing Libya, a majority Muslim country, in order to protect civilians from Gaddafi. Now, there are, you know, some things that really are important about this. Ronald Reagan tried to kill Gaddafi in the 1980s. He bombed downtown Tripoli. Lots of civilians were killed. They failed in their effort to assassinate Gaddafi. Gaddafi had drawn the ire of U.S. and British imperialism when the 1969 revolution happened in Libya. Gaddafi and his forces seized control of the military bases that belonged to the United States and to other imperialist countries and made them Libyan military bases. Libya took control of its own oil. Libya had the largest oil reserves in all of Africa. Gaddafi was not only a part of the Arab world, but being an African country, he used Libya's vast oil assets to basically fund the Organization of African Unity and became a primary voice for Pan-Africanism in addition to Pan-Arabism. So Gaddafi had drawn the ire of and was targeted by American imperialism for a long time. Now, anybody can say whatever you want about the Gaddafi government. Do you support the Green Revolution? Do you think it's a new kind of socialism? Is it a con job? There's all kinds of things that different people say about Libya. My point is the United States was going to attack and always wanted to attack Gaddafi and Libya, not because of the form of government, not because of this policy or that policy, but they felt that Gaddafi was a menace because he had taken possession of Libya's natural resources. He had taken possession of the country. He evicted the imperialists from their military bases. That's why they hated Gaddafi. And Gaddafi, after he saw the aggressive character of the U.S. in the second Iraq war, Gaddafi tried to make a deal with the United States. He said, look, I'm going to get rid of my nuclear weapons program and other weapons programs. I'm going to open the country for foreign investment. We have lots of oil after all. And he started doing business mainly with Europeans, a lot with Italy and with France, but also to some extent with the United States. But even then, even though Gaddafi tried to tone down the conflict with imperialism and tried to make deals with the imperialists, when you read the WikiLeaks dumps from 2009 and 10, you see all these State Department cables condemning Gaddafi because they call him a resource nationalist. You got that one? Resource nationalist. That means Libya 
which had the largest oil reserve in Africa, preferred to keep control over its own oil rather than allow it to be dominated by Western oil companies. That made him an enemy. He was a resource nationalist. Again, it's not about the nature of Gaddafi. It's not about the nature of the government. It's not about the form of government. When the United States and the NATO countries could see in the Arab Spring that started in Tunisia and spread to Egypt and was at the early stage capturing the hearts and minds of people in the Arab world who were wanting to be free of despotism and neo-colonial domination, the U.S. saw in that campaign, in the case of Libya and then again in the case of Syria, an opportunity to topple governments that were targeted because they were, quote, resource nationalists, because they were independent, because they were anti-colonial. And even if they tried to make deals earlier with imperialism, they still were part of the enemy camp. Their existence as anti-colonial governments had its genesis, its origin in the Cold War when the Soviet socialist bloc gave aid to these smaller countries that were emerging from colonialism and allowed them to become independent governments under their own leadership. So again, it's part of the old struggle identified by Lenin in World War I, explaining war is the division and redivision of the world. In the case of Syria, in the case of Iraq, in the case of Libya, or in the case of Yugoslavia, the redivision was not really a competition between the imperialists. The imperialists basically had a high degree of unity, less so in the second Iraq war, but a high degree of unity that these formerly colonized countries who had independent governments should be taken down. And that the prospect was once taken down, their resources would fall under maybe not colonial domination, but neo-colonial control of Western corporations, Western banks. And again, because Gaddafi was so demonized, big parts of the peace movement, I'm not naming organizations. My point here isn't to have like a throw mud at different progressives. My point is to make the larger political point that if you're fighting for peace and against war, but you're not doing it on an anti-imperialist basis, if you want to be, quote, respectable in bourgeois public opinion, that prevents you from establishing a clear-cut, clear, politically clear anti-imperialist perspective, which is the only way to understand why the U.S. is constantly at war. The U.S. at the end of World War II invaded Korea. Then 10 years later, it had the war in Vietnam. It invaded the Dominican Republic in 1965. At the tail end of the Vietnam War, it invaded Cambodia and Laos. And then in 1983, it invaded Grenada. It bombed Lebanon that same year. In 1989, the U.S. invaded Panama, again, to stop drug trafficking or to free the people. And after A year after the invasion of Panama, there was the invasion of Iraq. There was the so-called humanitarian intervention of the Pentagon in 1992 into Somalia. Like, why do you need Marines and landed troops if you're trying to stop a famine? That doesn't make any sense. Then the bombing of Yugoslavia, the first round was 1995. And then the second big, you know, walloping defeat for Yugoslavia was 1999. And then right after that, is the invasion of Afghanistan in 2001, October 7th. Of course, the pretext there was the Taliban had hosted Osama bin Laden and refused to turn him over. But frankly, the Taliban said, if you provide evidence to us that 
Osama bin Laden is responsible for September 11th. We will turn him over to a third country for trial, to which George W. Bush said, we don't negotiate with terrorists and launch the invasion. So the U.S. invaded Afghanistan. It's still there. Then on March 19th, 18 months later, the U.S. invaded Iraq. Then in 2011, the U.S. and NATO bomb Libya. The U.S. having felt very strong about its ability to destroy the Gaddafi government was sure that they could then go on and topple the Assad government in Syria. And they used proxy forces. The CIA coordinated it with Turkey and Saudi Arabia, but millions, hundreds of millions of dollars were funneled in to so-called rebels, you know, revolutionaries. And again, in, in the Syria war, I wrote a pamphlet with Mazda Majidis called Two Opposing Trends, Socialists and War, because another major socialist organization in the United States supported the Syrian revolution, as they called it. But why would the CIA and the socialists be on the same side? Because the Assad government is such a brutal dictator? No, the U.S. was trying to overthrow the Syrian government because it was on a roll. They were going to take out Iraq. They were going to take out Libya. They were going to take out Syria. They wanted to destroy Iran, of course. I mean, this was imperialism sort of reconquering former markets that it had lost as a consequence of the anti-colonial struggles. And again, you know, if you're going to stand up and explain why the U.S. is really supporting the rebels in Syria, that means you have to go against public opinion, which has been orchestrated by the demonization campaign against Assad. Or, you know, what happened with the, the U.S. is now going to war because of, they said the Assad government carried out chemical weapons attacks. Again, demonization has always existed in war. The enemy is always demonized, but this is the go-to way that imperialism prepares the population. And the peace movement and the socialist movement can't go along with demonization. If it does that, then it sort of negates the possibility of explaining this endless war. And I just went through all the wars, endless war from an anti-imperialist and thus a truthful perspective. I want to play one last audio clip. This is, well, you'll recognize the voice. This is American imperialism announcing that it arrogates to itself the right to kill leaders of another country, as long as that other country has also been thoroughly demonized and targeted. Let's listen. As president, my highest and most solemn duty is the defense of our nation and its citizens. Last night, at my direction, the United States military successfully executed a flawless precision strike that killed the number one terrorist anywhere in the world, Qasem Soleimani. Soleimani was plotting imminent and sinister attacks on American diplomats and military personnel, but we caught him in the act and terminated him. Under my leadership, America's policy is unambiguous to terrorists who harm or intend to harm any American. We will find you. We will eliminate you. We will always protect our diplomats, service members, all Americans, and our allies. Of course, that's dripping with arrogance and racism and militarism and imperialism, a truly criminal act. Qasem Soleimani was not caught in the act of committing terrorism. He was coming to Baghdad airport. He did arrive in Baghdad airport at the invitation of the Iraqi government to carry out peace talks. 
the U.S. government knew that he was coming to Baghdad's airport for those talks, and it eliminated Qasem Soleimani. Obama, by the way, did this routinely. Uh, Medea Benjamin wrote an article, I think she said it was 27,000 bombs had been dropped just the last year of the Obama administration through, mainly through drone strikes, targeting people in Yemen, Pakistan, Afghanistan, other countries. Yes, the U.S. acts in a lawless, imperialist way, unlike any other government in the world. I mean, the United States is always saying China is a great threat. Well, you know, China hasn't bombed any country in the last 40 years. No Chinese bomb has dropped anywhere for 40 years while I've just gone through this whole litany of American imperialist invasions. But I, what I think is important is that we understand, and if you hear, and one of the reasons I wanted to play all of these audio clips from George H.W. Bush and then Bill Clinton and then George W. Bush and then Obama and then Trump, you notice the theme is, in each and every case, America is defending itself. America is a victim. America is defending other victims. In the case of Libya, the resolution at the UN, which passed the Security Council, was to protect civilians in eastern Libya. That's why the UN authorized NATO's bombing. That was awful. But in each and every time, it's always to do something good. The imperialists are never going to say, look, we're going to bomb and destroy Libya so that we can take control of its vast oil reserves and reconfigure the Middle East, the resource-rich Middle East, the way it used to be configured, where we and Britain and France completely dominated everything, they're not going to say that. They're not going to explain to the American troops or their parents, look, we're sending you to Iraq to fight or Afghanistan in order to conquer Iraq and dominate it. They have to give it a noble cause, otherwise people wouldn't go and fight. And the American people have been in a stupor because of this the labeling and branding and demonizing of the targets. So the issue of terrorism, I want to finish on this. The issue of terrorism and terrorists is like a go-to. And a lot of people know that to be the case now because the way George W. Bush in the U.S. government and U.S. military used the war on terror as a pretext for all of these invasions, occupations, imposing torture, black sites, secret prisons, Guantanamo, you name it, surveilling mosques, you know, having FBI agents infiltrate the Muslim American community, South Asian community, Arab American community. The war on terror was very, very useful as a branding. But the, the issue of terrorism was applied most forcefully before September 11th against the Palestinian people. Every time the Israeli government launched a strike against Palestinians, if the Palestinians struck back, the U.S. media would say, Israel struck at terrorist camps and the terrorists fired rockets at Israel. The invasion of the West Bank and Gaza that stole even more Palestinian land in 1967, it was all portrayed in the American media as a struggle against Palestinian terrorists who threatened Israel's survival. Uh, every time the Palestinians engaged in any resistance, armed or civil resistance, they were labeled by the Israelis, and this was echoed in the media, as terrorists. And so the branding of the Palestinian struggle as terrorists was so profound that huge parts of the same peace movement, the one I'm talking about, refused to deal with the issue of Palestine for decades. When the Israelis invaded Palestine, additional parts of Palestine in 19, June 1967, when the West Bank and Gaza were stolen, 
there was a very vibrant, robust anti-war movement in the United States against the Vietnam War. And some people who were anti-imperialists said, let's defend the Palestinians too, or the Arab people too. And the main peace movement in the United States said, no way, we're not going to deal with Palestine. People who tried to raise the issue of Palestine in 1967 were literally taken out. They were shouted down. So we had this legacy where Palestine was never allowed to be talked about. And it wasn't just in the mainstream media. The U.S. peace movement shunned and treated Palestine and the just struggle of the Palestinian people as a taboo. And the reason I want to mention this is a lot of people don't know this. The Answer Coalition had a split. In other words, another one of these splits in April 2002, we were planning a demonstration on April 20th, 2002, and it was the Answer Coalition and a number of the same organizations that later or earlier and later constituted the other wing of the anti-war movement. And we were negotiating with each other about how to have a joint spring march for peace and justice. And then Israel reinvaded the West Bank. That was in the end of March, 2002. And the Answer Coalition said, we're going to make, and we should make, the focus of the demonstration be on Palestine. And the other coalition said, no, no, no. If we do that, no one will come. You can't specifically embrace the Palestinians. That's, that's how it was in the American peace movement. People today don't know this. People today don't know that Palestine was a completely taboo subject. So on April 20th, 2002, the two coalitions had demonstrations that were a few blocks apart. We were on the ellipse right in front of the White House. The other demonstration was on the Washington Monument grounds. Our demonstration focused on Palestine. And the other demonstration had a general peace slogan. Now, the assumption was our demonstration, because it was going to be about Palestine, which was a taboo subject, it would be much, much, much smaller. And the other demonstration would be much, much bigger. But it turned out we were able to make a strong connection to the Arab American community, to the South Asian community, to the Muslim American community. Our Answer Coalition organizers went to the mosques. We were speaking to Arab and Muslim Americans all over the country. And about 80,000 people attended our demonstration. It was the biggest and first really massive demonstration for Palestine in the history of the U.S. peace movement. We ultimately merged with the other rally, which had not taken up the slogan of Palestine, and we had a joint march finally to the Capitol building. But that was a big split in the movement. I wrote an article at the time why the April 20th protest should be considered historic, because it was really the first time that we could demonstrate, that the anti-imperialists could demonstrate that not only was the cause of the Palestinian people just, but you could have a massive, not a tiny, but a massive protest in support of Palestine. That sort of broke the issue open. Then people started talking about, oh, you actually can talk about the Palestinian issue without being completely marginalized. But then the Answer Coalition, and I'm not going to go into the name of the other major anti-war coalition that we were organizing sometimes in United Front with, sometimes on different days and different slogans. We had a demonstration in New York in 2004. We said, let's have a united front. The resistance is growing in Iraq. And this other wing of the peace movement, which called itself the biggest part of the peace movement because so many 
traditional peace organizations were aligned with it, they said, yes, we ultimately, we would march together, but the slogan had to be only about the occupation of Iraq. We were also insisting that it should be about the occupation of Palestine. And actually, in order to have a united march, we had to switch off. This is true, everybody. We had to switch off. When the Answer Coalition was up for 45 minutes or however long, and its speakers were speaking, we had a banner behind us on a pulley, and the banner said, occupation is a crime from Iraq to Palestine. That was our slogan. And then when the other coalition took its turn at the stage, the pulley pulled down that banner and raised another banner that omitted the word Palestine. In order to have a unified, massive march, and it was massive, it was more than 100,000 people, we had to agree to share the stage, but using two different kinds of banners. Now today, so much progress has been made in terms of support for BDS, support for the Palestinian people. A lot of people today don't realize and don't recognize that the American anti-war movement also refused to take up Palestine for so long or to take it up in a meaningful way. And I think it's only the struggle of anti-imperialists, and of course, most importantly, the struggle of the Palestinian people, the persevering struggle of the Palestinian people, but the struggle, the political debate over Palestine was also a reflection of this larger problem, which is if the peace movement doesn't stand up to demonization, if it doesn't take an anti-imperialist perspective, if it tries to find the line of least resistance in the heartland of imperialism, it's not able to really be able to tell the whole story about why the United States is a country that's endlessly at war. And when I say war, I don't simply mean bombs bursting in air or troops occupying other countries. I mean economic sanctions and all kinds of economic, political, diplomatic, and military measures taken to weaken or destroy targeted countries. They are targeted not because they are evil, not because they're actually even a menace to the United States in any way. Right now, the U.S. has embarked on a new war drive with China, and I believe the U.S. is preparing for a military conflict in the South China Sea. So we have all of the demonization of China going on. So Americans can learn to hate and fear China. This is the tactic of imperialism, and to be a true fighter for peace, an anti-imperialist fighter for peace, means you have to work within the perspective of anti-imperialism, meaning that war is not simply the absence of peace, that war is the absence of justice, that war is an extension of imperialism. And you have to be able to be strong enough to stand up, withstand public pressure that takes the whole society in when the demonization hits full throttle. You have to do all that in order to be able to tell the truth. And the truth, the anti-imperialist truth, is the key for the American anti-war movement to become a truly robust, radical, and defining feature of American politics. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.